Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Insofar as the daily bread of the Lord's Prayer is the daily reading by which the disciples should be fed. In Matthew's Gospel, poverty is the consequence of refusing to receive and distribute the Lord's heavenly bread. In the plainest and most obvious meaning of Matthew's metaphor, if the people living in your house are poor, it's because you are not feeding them. You have no one to blame but yourself. You will always have poor instruction, but there is only one written gospel. Exit Peter. Enter Timothy. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 6 to 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 393 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This is an interesting episode today because we are presented with a woman who has a significant function at this point in the story. A woman who, according to Father Paul, represents the important place of Timothy as the one to whom Paul imparts the deposit. This beautiful story of the anointing, which parallels the story of the anointing in the Gospel of Mark, which technically comes next in the canonical storyline of the New Testament, pops up before the crucifixion and serves as a kind of hopeful moment before the dark tragedy of the crucifixion. I like how you brought up that this is a sudden scene because it's one of those lessons that Father Paul taught us where if you can leave something out completely and the story works just fine, then you have to understand what the meaning of that section is. It's special. And if you jump from verse 5 to verse 14, it actually makes perfect sense. And at the end of 4 and 5, they're talking about how they're going to off Jesus. And then verse 14 is about getting Judas to off Jesus. So this is an odd passage that it would just get stuck in here. It feels kind of stuck in here, like it's an addition somehow, which means we have to spend a little extra effort to understand how it flows. On the one hand, you have the head of the assembly at the temple who's trying to get rid of Jesus and then you have these others specifically this woman who honors Jesus in a very lavish costly way and 
inserting this passage where this person who, based on Matthew 25, who is in need, who is vulnerable, actually represents even the king when it comes to Judgment Day. This is what this woman offers us as we read this passage about, like you said, Father, the dark end that's coming to Jesus with the crucifixion. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Just a couple of features worth pointing out in these two phrases, Richard. The first is that the term that is translated here as very costly, the Greek term varitimos is the word that Father Paul argues is connected to the term bartimeos, which draws the connection to Timothy, Paul's student, his protege, the one to whom the deposit, the parathiki, that we spent so much time talking about in the parable of the talents was entrusted. These connections are not arbitrary. The parable of the talents was just a few verses ago, and now you have this allusion to Timothy. So I think Father Paul is onto something in the connection he's drawing here through the terminology. The other interesting feature of this verse is the fact that in all of the Gospels, I just want to call this out, Rich, because it will at least help us understand how each of the Gospels plays with contextual terminology differently. In all of the Gospels where this scene appears, we talk about the anointing of the head, which has a specific function when you think about Paul's terminology with respect to the Roman household. Whereas in John, we deal with the anointing of the feet, which is a whole nother discussion. Here, we'll see how Jesus shifts a bit in his terminology later in the passage, but already we should be thinking about what Paul has to say about the body politic, the res publica of the Roman Empire, and what it means when we think about Christ being the head of the Republic. So these are just some key elements that I want to tease out right at the start of this section of chapter 26. This happens to us all the time, I think, as readers of Scripture, and I'm grateful for the podcast because it forces me out of this paradigm, but we'll blend things together and we make assumptions about texts that aren't there based on other texts and things like that. And I really like that we are able to spend time together looking at these things because Matthew and John both use the scene, but Matthew and Mark use it in a similar way that's different from John, and that's the head versus the feet. And it's so easy to just say, well, you know, she anointed him. But why would Matthew and Mark do it differently than John, or John do it differently than them, or however you want to view that? The imagery is different. You know, when you anoint the feet, it it harkens to the Song of Songs. It also harkens to Isaiah and the feet of the one who brings the gospel. And Romans so, 10 also, obviously, which is dealing with Isaiah. Yeah, it's got a particular emphasis. This is why Bible as literature is so important, because you have to take these factors into consideration. And here it's on the head. And when there's an anointing of the head, then it starts to sound 
like either the coronation of a king or the ordination of a priest. Now, could it be either of them? I don't know. But what I do know is that Matthew, as we've said since the very beginning of looking at Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is exactly the focus, the main theme of the gospel of Matthew. Remember, for many chapters, we didn't go more than a dozen verses without running into the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. And then we would have parables about the kingdom so often. Now, not only is the kingdom of heaven at hand, we have the king of heaven at hand. This is the one who inherits the rule from his father. This is what he's come to do precisely at the time, as you said, father, of the dark end with the crucifixion. And so this woman comes in. Now, who is this woman? She comes out of nowhere. Why is Jesus staying at the house of this leper? There's some strangeness here as well. We don't know anything about this woman other than she dumped oil on Jesus' head. She comes out of nowhere and dumps oil on his head. That's an interesting feature. Why would that happen? We have Simon the leper, so he's staying with someone who is an outcast. We have a woman who's acting in a very strange way, so perhaps also an outcast herself. It contrasts very clearly with those who are at the center of the community, i.e. verses 1 through 5, who want to kill Jesus, as opposed to those who live in Bethany, the house of the poor, and a random woman who, in the house of a poor, offers an entire vial of costly ointment to Jesus for the sake of his ordination, and Simon the leper, a leper who hosts Jesus in his home. The hospitality and kindness and honor paid to Jesus contrasts in the house of the poor as opposed to Jerusalem. Function, function, function. Simon is Simon. It's functional, not ontological. You can't say this is this Simon, and this is that Simon. It's Simon. It's a functional name. So, who is the poor to whom Jesus will refer later that you're stuck with after he's gone? You're stuck with Simon Peter, who is a poor teacher and a poor substitute for the one who brings the Torah to the nations. So, under the nose of the poor, you have this woman who is coming forth to anoint the head of Jesus. So something is happening in the midst of this poverty, this poverty of instruction. That's how I take the metaphor of Simon the leper. We jump always immediately, all of us do, when we hear these texts, we hear poor and we get excited because we think about the prophets and our duty towards the poor as well we should. But this text in particular, I love this text. This is a text for the people of this country in this century who are hitting each other over the head with social justice because it shows you how Satan twists the judgment of the text in order to serve his greed. 
you try to undermine a correct action that serves the commandment by hitting somebody over the head with a commandment, you turn the commandment into a bludgeon, thus demonstrating that you are the poor teacher and you are the one who is not following the commandment. So I think there is something there going on with the phrase Simon the leper, and it's always, with respect to Scripture, much more than meets the eye, which is why you have to listen. And that also is kind of an irony, Richard, because the name Simon means listen. Listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. It's the Shema. Is he listening? I don't know. We'll see. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, why this waste? They sound like they're on the parish council, Rich. (laughs) I say to my parish council president. (laughs) It's true. On the parish council, it is a difficult choice on what is a waste and what is a good use of money, but that is precisely because of our riches that we have that problem. When the sun of glory is in your midst, you can spend all the money you want. I know that I can speak to our treasurer and I know that we can get that clear, (laughs) but I know that it's difficult. It's very difficult because this ointment was used for the eschaton. This was bringing in the eschaton. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king of heaven is at hand. So there's no keeping anything around anymore, just like you don't need to go back for your cloak when it's time to run for the hills. What are you going to keep your oil around for now that the king of glory is here? You're now dedicating yourself by giving this offering. My wife often talks about the image of the whole burnt offering in the Old Testament. And it's a normal offering. You could offer some meat. And after that was offered in the temple, you would take what was left over and you'd cook it and you'd have a feast for your people and for the priests and that sort of thing so that everyone would benefit from this bounty that had been given to you by God. But a burnt offering, you go and you bring it in and it's completely burnt and it's completely gone by the end. Nobody benefits anything. You take a perfectly good piece of meat, an animal that you could have maybe used in other ways on your farm, and it's gone. It's a farmer taking his best combine and setting it on fire. That's what it means. And here's a woman who lives in the house of the poor with this costly ointment and just dumps it out. Just dumps it out. So the indignation is, is, oh, hold the phone. Was this the best use of this? We could have sold it and used the money for different things. Do we really need this thing of oil? But what Jesus doesn't say yet is you can't go back for your cloak. When you're heading for the hills, doesn't matter how many cloaks you've got in your house and what you could have done with them. And maybe you could have sold them. And then on the way uh, to the hills, you could have bought some food, you know, so you would have been in better shape. I mean, looking at what we were talking about in chapters 24 and 25, if you're not ready now, if you haven't given to the poor now, it is now too late. It's urgent. They're trying to come up with a plan for the future when there is no future. She's doing what has to happen now because now is the last moment possible. If you don't use it this moment, the moment is gone. There is no giving to the poor after that. Now is the time. For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. 
<laughs> Father Mark, we could have had a festival and done really well. <laughs> and we could have marketed the church in the process. <laughs> Sound familiar? Come on. Come on. You want to grow your church? Really? I mean, let me just explain why for 20 years I have consistently been the fly in the ointment in every discussion about church growth at every opportunity. Grace is the gift that the Lord gives. What gift has the Lord ever given that isn't full on day one? What do you have to grow? I explained this last week in the homily, Richard. This is the sin of every parish council. They try to figure out how to grow the church and then measure how they grew it and what it grew into. What are you talking about? There's only the gift from above, the Lord's gift. It's already full when he gives it to you. You have only to say, Efcharisto, and do something about it. You don't tamper with the gift, which means if there are three people in church inside your building, then that's the fullness of the gift. If you're not hearing scripture, you think that's the res publica. You don't look out across the entire neighborhood and realize that that is the body of Jesus Christ. Whoever lives there is the body of Christ. What is there to grow? They're already there. We just have to change our thinking. I mean, for heaven's sake, people. That's what poor instruction is. Poor instruction is trying to convince people to skimp out and to cheat the gospel in order to do something else. And that's exactly what they're trying to do in the house of Simon the leper. And that's exactly what Jesus is bearing witness against here in this text. This just reminds me of a time when I was talking to a priest and I said, you know, as a parish, I think we need to be donating to the poor more. And this priest told me, we're not ready yet as a community. We still have to expand the building and use our money that we have to build an addition on. Our building isn't ready yet. Our people aren't mature enough to give to the poor. I had this conversation one time, and ironically, this church was situated across the highway from one of the poorest areas in town. And we had had people come from across the highway to coffee hour. Much to our shame, they were not welcome. So in a way, yes, we were not ready to give to the poor because we didn't care about the poor. We were citizens of Jerusalem, not of Bethany. But Jesus aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. She has done the commandment. Ergon gar galon. A good work. She has done the work of the commandment. What is your trouble with her? This is the basic logic of scripture it reminds me always it's the common sense of scripture what's your problem are you upset because she's a woman are you upset maybe she's a gentile are you upset that she didn't pay her diocesan dues that she didn't go to liturgy this weekend or she doesn't come to your church 
but she lives in the neighborhood. What's your problem? She did the correct thing. We know why you have a problem. Because of the poverty of your instruction. You are the problem, and that's why you have a problem. That's where this story is headed. We are already past the time of hope for the house of Simon because he's not listening. Jesus is going to be executed. Peter is going to deny him. Judas turned his back on him. So let's pay attention to the story and understand what's going on. There is a deficit of instruction. There is a poverty of instruction. And now there is a choice. Who is going to be left as the custodian of instruction after Jesus is gone? It's not going to be Simon. It's going to be Timothy. And you know, Rich, the further we dig into this text, the more I'm beginning to see what Father Paul is saying about this pericope. Peter in Matthew takes an especial beating of being on the fence. Mark doesn't make Peter out to be so great, but Matthew kind of dishes on a little bit more to make Peter look even more suspicious. In Matthew, we have these kinds of inclusios where you have things at the beginning and you have things at the end. And at the beginning in chapter 4, it's Simon who is called Peter. And here we have Simon who is in the house of the poor, who is the one showing hospitality to Jesus. I mean, couldn't Simon have had a, a feast for poor people and not Jesus? Why Jesus and the disciples? Couldn't this meal have been given to others? I mean, it's endless. But Jesus brings it down to brass tacks. She did a good thing. That's it. Doesn't matter if they're a Muslim. Doesn't matter if they're a prostitute. Doesn't matter if they're an atheist. It doesn't matter if they're a Republican. Doesn't matter if they're a Democrat. It doesn't matter if they have a college education. Doesn't matter if they work in a coal mine. They did a good thing. They did a good thing. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. There will always be somebody around who doesn't know what they're talking about who's teaching the wrong thing, who's advocating for something worldly or selfish, or who is speaking in my name but doesn't know what I actually teach, or who distorts what I teach for their own nonsense. These are the poor of whom Jesus speaks in this passage. These are people of religious conviction who speak out of the poverty of their own dark, empty, false wisdom, their own twisted worldview, their own philosophies, their own ideologies, their own beliefs. The one who is scriptural doesn't speak. That's why the Virgin Mary, as we'll hear in Luke, is so important a figure, because she doesn't speak. God speaks in Scripture, not the church. The Lord is the one who speaks. The rest of us do. And this is what Jesus is emphasizing here. She is doing what the commandment says. And that's why she's not poor. And Simon is and shall remain poor. The poor you will always have with you. It's so ironic that the disciples are saying, what about the poor, putting themselves above the poor, when Jesus is emphasizing that 
not only are you always going to have poor people around you, but you're always going to have poor teachers around you. And the true poverty that you are experiencing, oh disciples, is that you haven't listened to my teaching and you haven't taken up the riches that I have given you in order to distribute them to the poor. Once I'm gone, you won't have anyone to give you more riches, and God help those who need that teaching when you are the ones who are poor in teaching. Ah, but you will, and this is what's so powerful about Father Paul's reading, Richard, because of the connection, again, to Timothy, because Paul was able to entrust the gospel to Timothy, the Potathiki, there will be the gospel preached among the nations after Jesus is crucified. That's the hopeful element here. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Originally in verse 7, we hear that she anointed his head, but now in verse 12, Jesus in Matthew refers to his body which is clearly Pauline terminology, clearly the Roman household. It brings it all together. She represents Paul's trusted disciple, Timothy, and she is the one who is preparing the body of Jesus for crucifixion, which means that she is the one who embraces what Peter rejected and feared, which is the crucifixion, which is the content of the Pauline Gospel, Richard. You're not going to have me with you. I'm going to die here, exactly with the contrast with the Satan, who is Peter, who denies that Jesus is going to be crucified and killed. And the urgency of chapters 24 and 25, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and now the king is at hand. The king has been ordained, coronated, but... How is this king going to reign? He's going to reign from his throne, the cross. We have Jesus in the house of the poor, coronated by an unaccompanied woman, reigning from the cross. If the disciples don't get it by now, they're in trouble because there's not someone who can repeat this teaching after Jesus is gone. Accept the hope that you said, Father, that this teaching will go to the Gentile church at the hand of Paul, because we don't know if these disciples are going to be able to further this teaching, because it's the end of the last quarter. I mean, there's not a lot of time for them to get their act together. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her what this woman has done. <laughs> what she has done. Not what she thought, not what she believed, not what she said, what she did. Can we be clear on that? The action she took. He's interested in her works, what she did. I want to say it again because I think someone's going to eventually hear this story and say the main thing is what she felt or what she thought. So I want to just make sure people hear <laughs> what Jesus said. He said that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. It's amazing to have a character who only does one thing in the entire Bible, 
And that's enough for Jesus to say that she's going to be remembered forever. These disciples are going to be remembered forever, but not for the same thing. This woman performed one good action. That was enough for her to be remembered forever whenever this gospel is taught. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.